0: churches in central Illinois. If you've been in Decatur at all the last week or so, you'll see those blue room for doubt signs and it is a blessing to know that it's something bigger than our church. It's bigger than First Christian Church. It's bigger than the Independent Christian Church. We have Baptist churches. We have Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Assembly of God churches. Uh, one of the members of my Sunday school class said they turned on the TV early this morning and Doug Lowry from Maranatha what was bringing this sermon. Um, I asked her who did a better job and she didn't want to answer that. So I don't know if that's good or bad. No, I'm just kidding. But um, it's awesome to be a part of Room for Doubt. One resource I want to make you aware of, and I'm embarrassed to say we're almost out of these. uh, There is a book by Mark Middleberg. Mark Middleberg is going to be at Millican in two weeks. He's going to give us a little infomercial at the end of the service about that. But he wrote a book, short book, 125 pages, entitled The Reason Why Faith Makes Sense. I think I only have 30 of these left. I'm going to get more of them this week. We are asking for a $2 donation, but quite honestly, if you don't have $2, just take a book. We want you to read it. This book is especially a great resource if you have someone in your life and they're just not buying the God thing. They're not buying the Christian thing. It just doesn't make sense, and you're trying to get them to come to church or Room for Doubt, or you're trying to get them to be in your community group, and they're saying no, consider giving them this book. They can read it at their leisure. I I love this book and I'm very thankful for it. Last week, we dove in with message one, The Upside of Doubt, and looked at three questions primarily. What is doubt? What causes doubt? And how can we deal with our doubts? And I want to put up on the, the screen kind of the last part of the message, the acronym for the word faith. How do we deal with our doubts? Well, we find the root of our doubt. What really is the reason behind this? We ask God and others for help, we don't go it alone. We try to dive in. We ask God to help us, but we try to do it in community. I, identify your game plan. What is your plan? How are you going to deal with your doubts? T, take care of your spiritual health. We talked about when we go to the doctor because we're physically ill, we never feel bad about that. And usually we feel better if we do what they tell us to do. Uh, We need to take care of our spiritual health. And then H, this is where I want to land for a moment, hold on to the tension. Too many times we want faith to be a fast. Food like experience. How many of you, like me, get really frustrated if you have to sit in the line at McDonald's, the drive through line, for more than two minutes? I get frustrated. I mean, I want my coffee now. I want my Egg McMuffin now. That's the world that we live in, the fast food culture. I was with Mark Witzke one time, and we were going through a drive through, and he was timing the drive through people because that's kind of his world. And, And there's a certain amount of time that if you're doing it well, good, and if you're not, not so much. We shouldn't try to do faith like that. We want fast food answers, and sometimes there's not fast food answers. Sometimes holding on to that tension is the best thing that could possibly happen to us. It helps us to really grow in our faith. It helps us to really own our faith. So if you are wrestling, that's okay. Don't let it go. Don't try to get the Egg McMuffin answer. Spend time, dig in, really try to figure out what God might be saying to you. This week, we'll get to in a a moment, is week two. How can we be sure that God even exists? But before I get there, I want to talk about next week. Next week, 9 30 a.m., we have one service. It's a one service Sunday. Every year during apple and pork weekend, we do one service. Bob Monts from Lincoln Christian University is going to be preaching. He's an excellent communicator. He's been in the pulpit before. You will be blessed by him. Also next week, even though there is no regular programming at 8:15 or 10:30, Bob will lead a study group at 10:45 in the fellowship hall, that week only. And he will be tackling week 3, which really deals with the Bible. How can we trust the Bible? How can we sure, be sure that the Bible is correct and that it's not full of myths or mistakes? So that's next week take advantage of these incredible opportunities that are in front of us. I'm going to do something today that I have never done the entire time that I've been at Clinton or the entire time I've had a Sunday morning sermon slot. I'm going to show you about 10 minutes worth of videos. So I'm just letting you know ahead of time that the resource, because a lot of you are going to say, where can I find those videos? How can I tap into those videos? These videos that we're going to see and many, many more are put together by Dr. William Lane Craig and you can find them at reasonablefaith.org. You might want to jot that down because it's not in your notes. Reasonablefaith.org. Take advantage of this website. If you have someone in your life and, man, they're struggling, if you are struggling, that is an incredible resource. It's free and it's there for the taking. the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Who said that? Carl Sagan said that. And if you've ever uh, watched the television show or read his popular book, Cosmos, you'll recognize that phrase. Richard Dawkins, in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, says, the factual premise of religion, the God hypothesis, is untenable God almost certainly does not exist. Richard Hawkins. What about the late Christopher Hitchings? He wrote a book, and the title itself tells you what his worldview is. The title is, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. When you hear those descriptions, when you hear about the titles of those books or those quotes, what? what comes to mind when i think about that i think of these are people that deny the existence of god they're saying no way jose can god exist they're saying it's just not possible it's just not plausible and as a preacher my temptation and i don't have it in, i don't have it here is to grab a bible and say let's turn to genesis chapter 1 or to grab a bible and say let's turn to jesus Or to grab a Bible and say, there's 37 different passages that we can break down together. But here's the problem with these individuals and people that follow that worldview, that paradigm. They have no value when it comes to God's Word. It's just a book. It doesn't do much for them. So, confession, we're not going to spend a lot of time in the Bible today. I'm going to give you some. But what I do want to help kind of unfold for you are four reasons that you should believe in the existence of God, that anyone should believe in the existence of God from the world in which we live. And and I will tell you, I feel ill-prepared to share this message with you today. There are dozens of people that are more qualified than I am, but you're stuck with me, so let's dive in together. Four reasons to believe God exists. And reason number one is this, the beginning of the universe points us to God as its originator. The beginning of the universe points us to God as its originator. And the big idea behind this is what is called the cosmological argument. And I could try to give you the cosmological argument. I've got a fairly short video that I think articulates it really well. Let's watch the cosmological argument.
1: exist, or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, Not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence, but one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible, then, that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that in fact it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist.
0: Okay, some of you, that's way up here. I understand that, I get that, Um, and that's okay. But I do want to summarize, and if you're taking notes, I want you to jot it down, because this helps you embrace the idea that that we can prove the existence of God beyond simply God's Word. Not that God's Word is bad, but that there are other ways to, to make a case for the existence of God. What is the cosmological argument? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And that's the cosmological argument. You can find that video. It's free, um, reasonablefaith.org. Reason number one, the beginning of the universe points us to God as its originator. Reason number two, the fine-tuning in the universe points us to God as its intelligent fine-tuner. This summer, Marla and Jordan and Peyton and I spent a couple days in the Great Smoky Mountains near Knoxville, Tennessee, and we did some incredible hikes. And I mean, it just absolutely wore us out. We would walk until we could walk no more, and we'd stop, and we'd drink our water, and we would gaze out and we'd see a beautiful waterfall. We would gaze out and we'd see a beautiful mountain peak. In fact, uh, we climbed to Chimney Tops, if some of you have been there before, and Jordan and Peyton and I scaled on the rocks, very unsafe, but very cool nonetheless. And never one time in that whole process did I say, what an incredible accident all this is. What an incredible happenstance all this is. But I did find myself many times quoting Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And when I look at just how intricate the universe is, how incredible God's creation is, I'm reminded that the fine-tuning in the universe points us to God as its intelligent fine-tuner. One more video. Let's check this out on fine-tuning.
2: From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered, By even a hair's breadth no physical interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere there'd be no stars no life no planets no chemistry consider gravity for example the force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant if this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, The universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 Really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that odds are, life permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, The best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be, it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge.
0: Okay, fine-tuning. Here's the challenge that I have for you today, wherever you're at on this arena. If you are someone like me, and you've grown up in the church, you've never really wrestled with the faith, you're probably what would be called a pre-modern, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Or you're someone that, that you're skeptical. You, you want the scientific laboratory proof that God exists here's my challenge for you today will you consider embracing a faith position because you probably do anyway now that's kind of like fighting words for people that are on the outside and they're saying you know I'm not buying the faith at all what do you mean a faith position that's for pie in the sky people that's for head in the sand people That's for people that don't use their minds. The idea of faith is just just a blind grasping at something that makes us feel good. But I think from both videos that we've seen, but especially the fine-tuned video that you saw, it is a faith position to say that all of this is an accident. That we're all just incredibly lucky. That the next time you're out and you see the beauty of God's creation, I call it God's creation, you might just call it a sun that is setting to say, it's all by chance it's all by happenstance. Consider acknowledging that you're embracing a faith position. Well, reason number three, I want to get out of the, the, the scientific world for a minute. Reason number three, our sense of morality points us to God as our moral lawgiver. I want to play a game with you and I want your responses to be family-friendly. We've got some youngsters with us, which it's awesome that they're with us. But I, I, I'm going to share some names and we're going to play word association. And I really want the answers to be family-friendly. When I say the name Adolf Hitler, what do you say? Evil. Tyrant. Genocide. Concentration camps. Uh, millions murdered senselessly, okay? When I say the name Saddam Hussein, what comes to mind? Same thing, okay. Thank you, Marvin. Same thing. What else? Anything else come to mind? Yeah, Controlling? Domineering? If I tried to ask someone to come to the stage and make a case for the greatness of, the the great moral fiber of Adolf Hitler, Um, I'd be looking for a long time, wouldn't I? I would. Because when we read in our history books, and, and, and maybe some of us, our grandparents have told us about the horrors that existed during that time, it makes us sick to our stomach, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, whether we're a Christian or not. When we read about the terrible events that took place in Iraq under the leadership of Saddam Hussein, the the rooms, I think some of you know what I'm talking about. I, I won't say what they were, but it's just awful. Our stomachs turn. When we read about serial killers in our world today, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, whether you acknowledge the existence of God or not, you're horrified, you're sick to your stomach at what you hear has taken place. Why is that? Where does that moral compass come from? Well, I believe that each of us has an internal standard of morality, and it begs to ask the question, why? Why do we have this internal internal standard of morality? Why do we just know that something is wrong? Is it just by accident? Are we all just really smart people that, that converge together to be really smart together? Or does it point to the idea that God could possibly be our moral lawgiver. The moral argument, this is not in your outline. I added this this morning at about 5.30 in the morning. Um, This this is the the simplistic explanation of the moral argument for the existence of God. One, if God does not exist, moral values and duties do not exist. Up for grabs. To the strongest is the victor. Have you ever seen those National Geographic documentaries and you've got the lion and the lion is kind of prowling and you see a sweet little deer or a sweet little antelope and you just know how it's going to end, right? What's going to happen? It's lunchtime, right? And and, and the lion devours and, you know, maybe you shed a tear for 15 seconds or so, but you probably don't walk away saying, I hate lions, do you? Especially not in this day and age. We don't want to say that we hate lions, right? I, I mean, lions are lions, It's what they do. They don't have an internal compass. And some of you will get that comment about the lion over lunch today. So you can chuckle then out loud, please. It's an animal. It's a beast. But that's not the same when we hear about a serial killer. Or we hear about someone that does horrific, awful crimes to innocent people. It's because we do believe that objective moral values and duties do exist. And so the moral argument would say, therefore... We have to acknowledge that God exists. I think, and this is obviously written long before the moral argument made it to a video or made it to a a local PowerPoint in your church, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Where does this moral compass come from? Where does the sense of right and wrong come from? I make the case to you today that it could very well come from God. And reason number four, for the existence of God, our personal experience points us to a God who is worthy of our worship. I want you to think for just a moment, and don't talk out loud, think about a time that you feel like God has personally revealed himself to you. Just think about that time for a moment. Uh, I didn't share this first service that came up in Sunday school, but, but it's helpful for me. I can remember the first time that I really felt like God had a message for me, directly for me, Greg Taylor. It was my senior year in college. The church that I was serving in the Chicago area was going through just a terrible time. The minister had been let go. I was trying to preach sermons. I was doing 20, 22 hours, something like that to try to finish my education. Um, I was getting ready to play baseball for LCC. Um, I, I was getting ready to ask Marla if she would marry me a little bit later that spring. I had a lot on my plate. And honestly, life kind of stunk at that time. I gotta be honest with you. I have any time that I could just sit back and just relax. I mean, it was one thing after another thing after another thing after another thing. And it really came to a head on a Sunday evening. I was up at the church, and an elder was unhappy, and families were unhappy, and people were leaving the church, and it was just it was a tough time, and I decided I'm not going back to school. I'm going to my house in Champagne. And I went home, and my parents, and I hope my mom's not listening to this, but they're really boring people. People. They don't. They didn't go places. They didn't do things. But I showed up at like eight thirty on a Sunday night, and they're gone. They were on a trip, and so I'm in an empty, dark house in Champaign all by myself. And I did something that I don't like to do. I just started crying, and I'm not talking like the little polite wipe the tear away cry. I mean, I'm talking weeping. And I found myself on my bed that I grew up in in Champagne, crying on on a pillow, a little you know kind of hand pillow that I had made in Vacation Bible School as a third grader. And it was really bad art, I've got to be honest with you. It's supposed to be a couple birds in a branch, but it had a verse of scripture written on it, and it was 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on the Lord. He cares for you. Now, you may be sitting there saying, that's an awesome coincidence. That really is. But I will tell you as a 22-year-old, I felt like God spoke to me that Sunday evening, a personal encounter with the Lord. And I needed that verse. Now, I'm not going to tell you the next three months we're pie in the sky awesome. It was tough. But I never forgot that encounter. It changed me. And I think when we have personal experiences that point us to God, we should own them. We should acknowledge them. We should not be afraid to, uh, to, to, to admit personal experience makes a difference. Here's the point. Personal experience is difficult to dismiss. It's difficult to dismiss. And in the New Testament, we have a personal experience encounter that articulates this. In John chapter 9, Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's preaching. He's doing miracles. Some people love him. Some people hate him. And and, and he encounters this guy that was born blind, been blind his whole life. And Jesus makes one of his I am statements, I am the light of the world, and he encounters the blind man and he heals the blind man. And it's a cool miracle and everybody should be happy, but not everybody's happy because they're upset with Jesus. So they grab the guy and they grab his parents and they get them together and they're like, we want to know how this happened. And the parents are afraid to say it was really awesome because they don't want the religious leaders to be mad at them. And they ask this man that was born blind who now can see, explain it to us. Give us a deep theological explanation he'd never been to seminary he'd never taught in the synagogue he's just an ordinary guy whose life was really tough until that day and here's what he said he goes i I don't know about any of the great teachings I, I, i can't tell you that i can't give you any deep theological explanation but this the this much i know one thing i know i was blind and now i see and he didn't need the deep theological explanation. All he knew is that he hadn't seen anything his entire life. And now he's loving life because of a personal encounter with the Lord. And so don't be afraid of the personal encounter. What do I want you to do with this message today? Well, if you are like me and you've always pretty much been good with the faith, um, I don't want you to puff your chest out and say, I- I'm better than somebody else because you're not. But I want you to look for opportunities to have difficult, challenging conversations where you can be vulnerable and you can dig in and maybe show a video and maybe share some notes and maybe buy someone the book and have an opportunity to to encounter people that really wrestle with the faith. If you're here today, and I think it's probable that some are here today, and you're not really sure what you believe, you saw the yard sign, you got an invite card, you've seen on Facebook Room for Doubt, and you're still not sure what to do with all of this, don't make this just like a 20-minute positive and and, and just move beyond it when when the service is over. Dig in. Roll up your sleeves. Reach out to someone that you know that's here or someone that's not here and really try to investigate, could there be something to this? Does fine-tuning make sense? Does the cosmological argument make sense? Does the moral argument make sense? Do I need to pay attention to the personal experience? See, here's the bottom line for me today. Um, It works for me. And I think the reason that it works for me is because I've been in the church my whole life. I've been around God's word my whole life. I've never really went through a, a terrible storm of life. But if I were to give you a bottom line, here's what it is. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And that's a hymn that we used to sing. And that works for me. If that doesn't work for you, that's okay. But don't settle for just being unsure. Don't settle for, I don't know roll up your sleeves, dig in, and ask God to reveal himself. Ask fellow Christians, or or if you're not a Christian, ask a Christian to help you in this journey. Um, One of the things that can really get in the way in my life from moving forward in a positive way is pride. I'll be very transparent with you today. Pride can and has really gotten the best of me at times. My prayer for all of us in this journey is that we'll put our pride to the side and we'll say, God, please reveal yourself to me. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and thank you for the opportunity to, to consider some pretty deep uh, tenets, some pretty deep points of uh, connection. And God, it's my prayer that as we continue our worship, as we move into a time of communion, that, that you will reveal yourself that we'll have opportunities to encounter um, those who maybe struggle, those that may be looking for answers, and that there there won't be a smugness, there won't be an arrogance, uh, that none of us will think more highly of ourselves than we should, but that we'll understand that we're all on this journey together, and we're on a journey for truth. So God, help us, lead us, bless us. Thank you for, um, for the hope that we cling to. It's in your name we pray.